that you're a part of a denomination of churches that is some 2,000 strong here in the United States and 78% larger than that all around the world. As a matter of fact, if you were to go into any of our mission fields and you were to ask any other missionary from a different denomination or organization, who is best at training missionaries and putting them in the world? People would say Christian and Missionary Alliance. The ability for me to be here And for any of you that have gone or will go through the experience, and I hope join us back tonight as we look at the new vision for what's going on in our our denomination. The ability for any of that is the legacy and the history of all the years that people have been doing everything they can around the world to bring hope to the lostness. And I'm sure that out of this church and churches like this around the U.S., daily, weekly, God is planting visions in the hearts of those who he's asking to do very specific things for his kingdom. When I thought about this morning what I would share with you, it was not a missions-emphasized message, actually. See, I I feel that if you come back tonight and and you're part of the tour and you hear about the new vision and the strategies and what we're up to and how we're working to mobilize the next generation for kingdom change in this world, you'll get some of that. But what I felt like God deeply put on my heart for this morning is to bring a word of encouragement for you. That you would be encouraged. That as I tell students in this world, that you could move ever continuously from a place of crossing your fingers and hoping that you're sitting in the right church, that this is the right faith, that you are in fact serving the right God to a place of knowledge and understanding and a place of definite that I am. And so I bring to you a word of encouragement that I feel God has put on my heart to bring to you. Would you join me? And let's ask for his provision now. Father, we want only your word. We don't want anyone else's. We don't want a good word. We don't want a great word. We want the perfect word. And only you can provide that. You're the only one who can speak perfection true perfection into our lives with the end result in being not in who we become but our desire to look at you. God, would you be that perfection? Would you be the perfect word, the timely word that you speak of for this room this morning? For both me and my brothers and sisters. For your kingdom is greater Your truth is more true. Your love is more lovely than anything we could manufacture on our own. And to that, we set as our standard and our deepest longing. In your name, amen. The word that I want to bring to you comes out of 1 Thessalonians. If you know much about the New Testament, you know that there are quite a few books written by a guy named Paul, an apostle, a missionary, a church planter. As a matter of fact, if you read through Acts, specifically for this morning, Acts 17, you will find where this church, the church in Thessalonica, received its beginning. See, the the Spirit of God was on Paul and those early disciples after Jesus had left to do miraculous things. And probably one of the greatest things they ever sought to accomplish in the name of the Lord was to plant churches, which would allow us at any length to gather here this morning. As a matter of fact, they carry the message of John John 17 when Jesus is in the garden 
praying literally hours before his death on the cross. And he asks for one thing and one thing only for those who will believe in him because of the message of the disciples, and that was that we would be one. It took me a long time in my Christian faith to know that Jesus actually prayed something very specifically for me and for you hours before he died on the cross. He didn't pray for my health, my health, my well-being. He didn't pray that our churches would be large. He prayed that we would be one. And this unity has nothing to do with who we all are, but it has everything to do with the one who we are all to be looking at. In that, there is unity. It's how different nations and tribes and tongues and generations can be one, even though on the outside, they look very different. Our unity is not wrapped up at all into who we are, but in God. And Jesus goes one step further in that prayer, and he says, I don't want them just to be one, but here's what I want for them, Father. I want them to have the very same relationship that I now currently on this world have with you. I want them to be in you as you are in me. And he begins to create this reciprocal relationship, this divine dance, if you will, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which exists and is going over our heads in this room right now and has never stopped And I dare say that our world has not known one half of a second in its history to which this dance did not oversee all things and create all things. And as that relationship exists, Jesus says now, this very same thing that I've had with you, Father, I want every single person on Sunday morning in Butler in the second service to feel that very same way. Do you feel like you're dancing with our Lord? Not dancing for him. Not dancing while he's over there. But with him. This Christian life is not a journey to God. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about journeying to God. As a matter of fact, as we look at it, we find that this Christian life is a journey with God. Which is a very different thing. When I was younger in my faith, I used to think that I was here and and God was over there. And the more church services I went to, the more camps I went to, the more life conferences I attend, I got closer and closer. And then I'd come home and do something dumb and I would take a step back. And that one glad day, I would be so close as to reach out and touch him. And I realized that I had wasted all this time doing a dog and pony show for a God who was standing right behind me the entire way. He does not care or need anything we can do for him. Instead, While we were yet sinners, separated from him, he gave us our identity. He loved us. That is our identity, that we are loved by God. There is nothing more to it. Anything that comes from that love is a blessing, but our identity is found in him. And it was this message that Paul and those who were setting out to initiate the first century church most readily wanted to communicate to the people that were there. Now, as we talk about First Thessalonians, though, there's something very important that you and I have to do to really understand and grasp the weight of this letter. We must scrub everything we know about church today. Now, for some of us, that's 30 years of scrubbing. For some of us, it's 30, 30 days. I don't know. 
And I'm not saying we, not, we don't need to do what we're doing now. What I'm saying is if we want to understand and get into the biblical context of what Paul was writing into, we need to be that first century church. We need to be those people that heard about a man who died not too long ago but rose from the dead. And this guy Paul is amongst us and he is helping us to gather in his name. Because in his name is power, in his name is truth, in his name is freedom. That's why we gather. But we have no idea what to do when we do gather. We don't have the worship pastor. We don't have the interlude. We don't have the announcements on slides. We have none of that. We have Christ and Christ alone. I think. Really, that's what they said. I think. Some of the people that were gathered at this church never saw this man. And I'm willing to bet that none of you in this room have actually seen him. And so as they gather, as Paul sits down for longer than five minutes and anywhere he was, plant a church. And out of that church becomes an understanding that we must centralize around this great God, around this Savior. But what we do is anybody's guess. And so Paul's responsibility then, as he would leave, because he wouldn't stick around when he planted these churches, is to write letters back to them to remind them of some things. Things great and small. Things like, by the way, when you take communion, don't drink the whole vat of wine. It's not a good idea. But one of the more unsettling things that was going on in in Thessalonica at this point in time was something very major. People in the church were starting to die. And it had been told that those that die in Christ are the first to be raised. And so people were dying and everybody in the church was focused on them, waiting to see them rise. Nothing happened. See, they hadn't yet kind of understood fully what it was for the soul of a man or a soul of a woman to be with God. And so in and all of this, there's confusion. In and all of this, there's gathering. And in and all of this, there's persecution as well. And that was the room that people are in. And so I want you to go to that room. But there's one other thing about this room that makes it distinctly unique in this passage. And that is, at this time, churches that were began by Peter were merely only Jewish in culture, or they were Gentile in nature. The difference between Jews and Gentiles, the Jews were the ones that were supposed to be the chosen ones of God because of their heritage, because of their lineage. They received the blessing of God. They set the laws. The Gentiles were the quote-unquote sinners to whom Jesus was known to spend much time with. This church was one of the first churches that ever combined those two groups of people under one roof. And you think your church or any church in this land is dysfunctional. There was nothing more dysfunctional in this church than a bunch of people who believe they were the ones that deserved to be here and a bunch of people who believe they, can't, they don't ever deserve to be anywhere near here. Put them in the same room and that's Thessalonians. That's the book that was written to that body. Now, let's take a look at the beginning of it. We're not going to get too deep into it. We don't have to. Paul, who writes it, is always in discipleship and mentoring processes with others, namely in this book, Silas and Timothy. He writes to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul was always very careful to help them to understand the relationship that existed between the Father and the Son. To make sure that one was not let go or one was not emulated to be more important. Because if you and I know anything about the Trinity, if we've learned anything, it's that never one of them do they want to stand out amongst all the others. As God sends his Son to this earth to die for the sins of mankind, Jesus never does a song and dance about himself. He's always pointing to the Father. 
And when the Father looks down on us now, he sends his spirit to be our helper, who, by the way, does not want to be grieved, forgotten, or focused on. He just wants to be there to clear the way that we might see Jesus Christ. And when we look at Jesus, what's he doing? Pointing to the Father, who gives us his spirit to clear the way that we might clearly see Jesus, who points to the Father, who gives us his spirit. You see, that's the Trinity. That's that dance. That's what's going on right now in our lives around us. It has never not been there. And Paul wants to always bring the church into an understanding of what this is because this is why you will endure because of that. Then he says this line, which is something that today seems more like a Christian formality, something you might put at the end of an email just to make sure people know that you're a Christian. Grace and peace to you. But to fully understand the weight of these words, we have to remember who's hearing this. Grace. Grace is a very new concept at this point in time. Again, if we're scrubbing our understanding of 2,000 years of church and you hear the word grace put upon you, it's really bad for the Jews and it's really good for the Gentiles. Why? It's good for the Gentiles because they need grace. They have nothing. They are the sinful ones, the unclean ones. And grace is abounding for them that they might be with God in something they never thought they ever could get or deserve. And over here is a bunch of people, the Jews, if you will, that never believed they deserved any of that because they're already good enough to go. But when Paul says grace to this church, as he says to you now, grace, don't care what you've done, don't care how bad you've been, don't care how good you've been, we all need it. And it's the great leveler, it's the great equalizer that everyone in this world, no matter how good or how bad, needs, requires, whether they say it out loud or not, the grace of God to drip forth from heaven all over our lives and to completely consume us. Because without it, What do we get? We get a life without God. And the interesting thing is, is that the grace, the spigot of grace in heaven is turned on for all. In this room are the fortunate ones at this point in time who have seen it and understand. But my friends, there is a whole other part of this planet who have no idea that a spigot of grace is turned on for them at full blast. And they need to be able to see it. We'll talk about more of that tonight. And then he says a word, peace, which I believe the English language and as a result of the 1960s, we've completely demoralized. We have ruined. We have taken peace to be something that is so heavy and so weighty and put it on a t-shirt. And in a sense, we have made it shallow, normal, But remember again, the persecuted church that existed in Thessalonica and all the other places around the world at that time in the Middle East, right? And as these people were gathering, they had no idea when the Roman guards would come through and take out the whole lot of them. And what Paul says in the middle of all this is, listen, peace, which is not kind of like this symbol and has nothing to do with there will be no unrest. It will all be just beautiful. It means chill out. It's okay. In a sense, I've seen the man. And I know what he is. And I know this is right. And it's why Paul goes to great lengths in some of his other books to compare his unworthiness and his inability to be a believer and God's grace in his life because he wants everyone to know, listen, if I'm in, we can all get in. (laughs) Look at me, I am the worst. I am the worst. I am the, the least of all men. But yet, by the grace of God, I can relax in him. 
in any church on any given Sunday, at any time today, guaranteed what people need are grace and peace. These are timely words. These are perfect words given to you, knowing who our God is, the expanse of his universe and his ability to keep all things going and his desire to intimately know what's going on in your life right now at the same time should overwhelm us and push us into places we've never been. Not just getting in our car and going to church. And now begins the salutation of Paul's letter. Salutations are what we say at the beginning of a letter when we want to introduce ourselves or, or say hi. You know, for most of us, when we write salutations in an email, they go like this, hey, what's up? That's the expanse, the breadth of our salutations. But listen to the salutation of Paul to his church. We, referring to Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we always thank God for all of you. Now, it is here in this statement that we must contend with the verifiability, the truth of the word of God. Because Paul uses two words here which are very distinct and very unique and words that we try not to use at any length in the language or that we speak. All and always. As a matter of fact, I remember in high school, even in middle school, down to elementary school on the true and false test, you can already count the ones you're going to get right when you see the word all and always. Those are false. Nothing is all. Nothing is always. So at least out of 20, I'm going to get five right, right? Like that, I remember doing that. I would scale down the whole thing. I'd look for those words, false, false, false. Now I only have 15 questions to answer. See? We don't use words like that because we're very careful that we can't actually commit to those things. But I wonder why, when inspired by the, by, by the Holy Spirit of God to write this book for his people, Paul chooses to say the words all and always because he's got to know at some point in time we're going to go, that's either the truth or he's a liar. There's no in between. He either always remembers all of them or he doesn't. And I'd like to think that Paul did not write a book of lies. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this deep prayer life? Well, by the way, qualifies him as probably only one that could ever request that we would pray without ceasing. Because I believe that Paul, and much like what we should be doing, had an understanding of a prayer life that was uncommon. That it was not just prayer relegated to closing your eyes and folding your hands before Thanksgiving dinner, or just praying before a long journey but a continual run-on sentence with God that began when he understood who he was and did not stop until he was with him and could actually have a real conversation. That is the prayer life that we as a church must embody. This run-on sentence, this communication, this dialogue with God that he is our default at every level, with every question, with every inference, with every great thing, with every bad thing. God, what do you think? And some would say, God does not have time for my piddly little questions. And I would agree with you. He has no time because he is outside of it. He doesn't check his watch because where he is, there is no need for one. And if you think about all the things that are going on wrong in this world, when you go through the project experience and you see the expanse and the greatness of poverty and the greatness of lack of education and that women and children are literally plucked off the face of this earth and put down in a different country and abused in so many wrong ways, Jesus did not come to die for those situations to go away. That's not as important as you and me. That is why he died. For us. We are the most valuable thing to God on this entire planet. 
How dare we would ever think that he doesn't have time for even the smallest of our considerations. He loves us very much. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us that literally anyone on this planet who believed in that would not perish but would spend eternal life with him. And sometimes I I get confused and and I get off track and I focus only on the eternal life aspect. The only thing that makes that eternal is that God is gonna be there. So we're not actually wanting people to say the sinner's prayer so they can have this longevity that never ends in life because sometimes life is so difficult, people will go, why would I wanna keep living this? And that's not the point. The eternal life aspect is only because God is there and if God is there, it must be eternal. There is no temporal quality to God that even exists in him. If there was, he would not be God. And because he is eternal, then therefore, so go we. The key to that whole thing, though, is God is there. I really have no idea what happens to people when they die and they don't know God, except I can say this for sure, he won't be there. Call it whatever you want. Think of the most despicable, heinous thing you can. It won't be bad enough because God will not be there. I feel led to say right now in this room, if you have no idea whether you're going to be with God forever, now is the time to make a decision. I don't care if you're 12 or if you're 65 and you've been coming to this church for 30 years to feel good about your Christianity. That's not why this place exists. It exists so that you may see that God wants to be with you forever and right now. If you have never made that decision before, or if some way God is pulling back the curtain in who he is in your life, and you have received a revelation as to something about him that you didn't have, please act on it. Tell somebody. Ask somebody you care for to pray for you and your understanding about that. I will pray for you and your understanding about that. But the only thing that we want to be about is this understanding of before I was blind, but now I see. We always thank God, this God we've been talking about, for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. Now listen to the prayer of Paul for the people of his church. And this is what I want to be as a use of encouragement for you, this prayer here. We continually remember, before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have enough time right now to pull out all three of these. There's three of them. See, he, Paul often writes in triplicates. That is kind of like his penmanship. That's how he goes. And so there's the work produced by faith. And then if you take another step further, it kind of becomes increasingly harder. It becomes labor prompted by love. And then if you fully go into it, it is a obedience, right? It is, uh, it is an endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to know that all around this world, it's it's, it's an easy thing, it's a classic mistake that churches make, which is why I want to scrub everything that we know about church and go back to the initial. Sometimes when we say these words, work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope in Jesus Christ, the only three words we hear are work, labor, and endurance. That this Christian life is those three things, and well, by gosh, we accepted Jesus Christ, we got to do those three things. That is our dutiful honor but I want you to understand that that is not what this church heard. Those three words escaped like sand falling out of an hourglass. What they heard was faith and hope and love because that's the only thing they were willing to give their lives for and their children's lives for. And somehow, over 2,000 years, we've switched the importance of those three. 
If you're just coming here for work, labor, and endurance, it is not worth it without the faith, hope, and love. No one has ever said that there will not be any work necessary for the church to do. That is completely evident. You go through the project experience and you've got to be overwhelmed by the amount of work that we need to do. But my friends, unless your faith in Christ propels you for it, it's just a vain, vainful thing. We'll give humanity a better time here and now. I'm a firm believer that the only thing that breaks the poverty chain, the only thing that breaks the human trafficking situation, the only thing that breaks this malnourishment and thousands of children, as my friend Pete Brockup will tell you tonight, dying on a daily basis, the only thing that breaks it all, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, that is it. Now, God so chose us as the bride of Jesus Christ to be the hands and the feet of his compassion, of his love, of his enduring gospel for this world. How are we getting into those places? By those means. We're not, and we have never been in this denomination, a social justice mission. We are a firm foundation of believers who believe that the church is the way to show love to this dying world. That's why we don't just throw money at issues. We throw churches at them. And that's the only way it's going to happen, really. My time is short, but I do want to express one thing. And that is that in this faithful work that we will do, please understand that by faith, I mean this quality of really not knowing everything and to its full completion. I mentioned a story over in John earlier that was when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he was hanging out with Moses and Elijah and the disciples were watching. He came down into a valley where there was disciples trying to heal this young boy and they couldn't do it. And the, the man's father brought this young boy to Jesus and said, can you heal him? And Jesus goes, if I can, because the healing of Jesus Christ, what is never in contention is whether or not he can heal. That is, we have no implication on that. He can but he always puts it on us for our faith and our understanding and our deep desire for it to happen. Interesting. But then after he says, do you believe I can do it? You would expect this man who wants his son to be healed would stand up and go, oh Lord, I believe, make it so. But instead he gives what I believe is one of the most faithful answers in all the Bible. He says, I believe, but there's parts of me that don't. And you're gonna have to help me with that. Students in this room, if you struggle with faith, you will always struggle with faith. If you could actually figure it all out, it would not be called faith. It would be called knowledge. And it doesn't say works produced by knowledge, works produced by understanding, works produced by statistics, works produced by anything. It says works produced by faith. That's why we go, because we're faithful people. And inside of that faith is definitely this kind of, this crazy, crazy collision of belief and unbelief. So don't be deterred by that. Instead, let it propel you further into the heart of God. Tell him on an average basis, I don't know. I don't believe this is you. You're going to have to show me. That's what the New Testament church had to do. We don't know. You're going to have to show us. I believe that we serve a self-revealing God, not someone who is hit up in a cloud waiting for you to do everything just so before he pokes his head out and says, see, I'm here. No. Whether or not you do everything right or not, God reveals himself. 
I do believe, though, by the way, students and not students, that the number one way that God produces his will in our lives is right here. As a matter of fact, I'll go one step further and say the amount of time that we spend in this is probably equal to the amount of time we spend with our Lord. As we look at labor and love, if any of you are in a laborious relationship with anybody and you're laboring through something, if there is not love there, then get out of the labor because it's not worth it. It would not have been worth it for Jesus to die on the cross just because his father said so, but because of mixing with that hospitality of the cross was this overwhelming love and desire for us. And finally, endurance. When people ask me as a national youth director, what am I most concerned about as I look at the landscape of the future of youth ministry? I'm concerned about endurance for this current upcoming generation. I'm concerned that they will not be able to endure in this Christian faith as a whole. Not just one kid or another student, I mean the whole. As we become increasingly closer to a European post-Christian era, an Australian post-Christian era, as we look towards the deterioration of the family and the deterioration of ministry to families, what we're beginning to see in large part is an inability for us to be marathon runners in this faith, but only to be sprinters. Currently, my wife and I are training for a marathon. Prior to training for a marathon, which is in October, by the way, I would have run two miles tops and thought that a miracle. My wife and I, two weeks ago, ran 20 miles in a day. And despite all of the training and all of the physical side benefits and the opportunity to hang out with my wife, if you told me tomorrow I couldn't run anymore, I'd be like, that's great. (laughs) It has not made a runner, quote unquote, out of me. And all of that training has still only confirmed my understanding of marathon long-distance runners. They are freaks. Now, if you're in this room and that's you, you, you stand out and I applaud you and, and I, I, will, I will watch you on TV. But here's the deal. This Christian life is not meant to be a Usain Bolt 100-yard dash and then that's it, I'm out. But we're constantly growing this kind of mentality for our next generation that that's it, I'm out mentality needs to be destroyed. And what needs to happen is an elongation of their Christian life, what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience in the same direction. That when I look at people like my grandfather, a Baptist minister for 48 years, married for 62, still killing it at the retirement facilities in Indiana. How do I get that? How do I make sure my children have that? And my friends, the answer in it all which I will talk about tonight, is within the older generation. It's not within the younger generation. It's within the older. And tonight what I want to do is I want to call for challenge and I want to call for concern, for the vision that I believe that God has given to the next generation of the church. And by the way, I'm not talking only age, by the way. I'm not saying, where's the, I'm talking it's a mindset. There is an older generation mindset in the church of today, and there is a new, fresh, younger generation mindset, which I believe God is giving based on the landscape of our societies around the world. And at times, the older generation wants to dig in and say, that's never been what we've done. We won't do that. And you've got the younger generation coming to collision with a new understanding of our world, with a greater worldview. And unless those two get together, guess what? Close the doors. 
Maybe now, maybe 10 years from now, but close them up because it's not going to happen. That's what I want to talk about tonight. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are three verses into this book. Look how deep. If nothing, that should tell us that words matter. If nothing, that should tell us that intentionality and how we communicate to people matters. That Jesus is not only Lord over our lives, but word over our mouth, Lord over our hands, Lord over our feet, which I believe going through something like the Project Experience only brings that to the forefront. I want to pray for you now, and I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you, and I'm actually going to pray this very same verse over you because I believe this is a prayer of blessing. Why? Because I have not signed up for work and labor and endurance only. Those things will exist. Paul promises that in this prayer, but they will not be devoid of faith which produces that work, love which always prompts the labor, and the endurance which is inspired only by hope in Jesus Christ. Remember what I said, that first century church, they didn't hear work, labor, and endurance. They heard faith, hope, and love. And Paul reassured them in 1 Corinthians when he listed all of these fruits and all these things that matter, but he says these three remain. What were they? Faith, hope, and love. And I pray that in this community, no matter where I would ever go, and I would ask about this church, they would say, oh, they are a faithful people. Not a bunch of good workers. Faithful. They are lovers. Lovers of God lovers of one another, lovers of their family. And they're a bunch of marathon runners. They're not caught up by any wind that blows. They keep on doing that long obedience in the same direction. And even though I'm waiting for them to trip up, they do not. And even though I'm waiting for that to burn out, it does not. Because it is constantly inspired by hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, for this room and for these people, I ask the following. And I know it will be done. I know it will be done because I am praying your will. And you tell me in 1 John 5 that if I ask anything in accordance to your will, anything at all, you will hear it. And if you hear what I've asked for, then I will have what I have asked, 1 John 5, 14. I take confidence in that. And so I will not now pray my opinion over this church. I will not now pray good ideas over this church. I will pray your perfect word, begging you to answer it in accordance to your will. God, for this sanctuary, for all of us that find ourselves in it at this moment, not a coincidence, but a divine appointment, I want to remember their work, that it would always be produced by faith. I want to remember their labor. Some of them in this room are laboring hard over certain things, and they're wondering if it's worth it. But God, if love is there, it is all worth it. And finally, God, I pray that I'm looking at a room full of marathon runners in the faith. That they would endure. That they would be inspired only in that endurance. By hope in you. Because your kingdom is greater. Your truth is as true as it gets. And your love is more lovely. Your beauty is more beautiful. 
Your glory is more glorious than anything we could possibly do on our own without you. Bless this body, bless its leadership, and bless the remainder of this day. Show us things anew that we've never even considered. And not only give us that, but give us a according vision in how we might see it through with your help. According to your will, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.
If you want to get a glimpse of why the world so desperately needs that light, take time to walk through the project experience. You can do it right now after this service. Leave your kids in the nursery if you need to. Pick them up afterwards and go to the one in the old sanctuary. Walk through it this afternoon. Come back today. If you can't stay now, come back today at 4 and 6 o'clock. It'll be open. And you do not want to miss tonight. God, we've been in your presence. Good to be at your feet. I can't imagine what tonight's going to be. And I trust in the name of Jesus, you'll be with Kelvin and his team that are traveling even just now in the next couple of hours. For us throughout the afternoon, as we look forward to tonight, may we have known beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's been amazing to be in your presence, to see your heart, to know your need, to know your concerns, and to know what we can do to respond to that. Thank you for the privilege of just being with you today. I pray you'll bless us, protect us, and bring us back tonight. May your glory shine in and through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so very much for coming today. Again, if you can stay for a while, take about 35 minutes to go through it. If not, come back tonight between 4 and 6.